have a, something special to share with you today. We are going to be introducing you all to Pentecost. Now, Pastor Danielle is going to be sharing what is that? What is Pentecost? What is Shavuot? Now, some of you might know this as a variety of different teachings, and we're looking forward to that teaching. Today, however, we have something very special that I don't think we've ever done in the life of Spark. We do a lot of teachings about what it was, but have you ever wondered what it was actually like to be there? When you read these stories, what it would have sounded like, what it would have smelled like, what it would have felt like, what you would have heard, what you would have seen. And so part of the story that we don't often get to participate in are the visceral elements of the story. And so today, what we're going to do is participate in an activity you guys are going to share together, just a snapshot, a potential vision of what was going on 2,000 years ago in that time and in that place. And what's fascinating, what I hope that we all do together is as we experience this together, not only do we get to engage with the visceral elements, what we see and what we hear, but those elements inform actually what the story actually means. And so that's really critical and important. So I am absolutely thrilled about what we're doing. Last thing I want to say as part of an introduction, we've never done this in the life of Spark, but because of Nidhi, who has initiated this, Sparker-led, Sparker-shaped. This is a beautiful example of what Pastor Danielle always says, that Spark takes the shape of the people who come. And as a result of her initiation and her leadership and her coordination and her sharing of a gift from her childhood and her growing up and her spiritual experience, we all now get to participate in that. So we're tremendously grateful for that kind of leadership and sharing. With that said, I'm going to pass the mic off. Let us experience just a small little taste of what the heck happened way back when. Here you go. Pastor Omer. Jesus of Nazareth. Say the language first. English. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Urdu. Isu Nasri ek shakhstha, jiska khuda ke taraf se hona. تم پر ان معجزوں اور عجیب کاموں اور نشانوں سے ثابت ہوا جو خدا نے اس کی مرفت تم میں دکھائیے چنانچہ تم آپ ہی جانتے ہو لیکن خدا نے مات کے بند کھول کر اسے جلایا کیونکہ ممکن نہ تھا کہ وہ اس کے قبضے میں رہتا Mea vavenga, mafai longa, ua faia lea tua i o outou luma e ia. Peiona outou i loa foi, o ia ua whaatuina mai i lea tua. A wana tatala i pōpua ngā, o leoti, a wana le mafai ona tao whina ai o ia. Japanese. Nazira no hito yesu koso, kami kara tsukua sareta hou desu.神はイエスを通してあなた方の間で行われた奇跡と不思議な行と印しとにによってそのことをあなた方に証明なさいましたあなた方自身が主に知っているとおりですしかし神はこのイエスを死の苦しみから解放して復活させられましたイエスが死に
Cantonese。上帝藉著拿撒勒耶穌在你們中間行了異能、歧視和神蹟，以證明拿撒勒耶穌是被他派來的。這是你們知道的。但上帝为他解除了死亡的痛苦，使他从死里复活，因为他不可能被死亡勾禁。马利亚林，你们当然阿里姆波勒，对我们纳斯拉奈耶稣维内贡德，你们的纳德维切耶切，圣地格隆、阿尔布登格隆、阿德亚拉格隆贡德，对我们你们阿文内看得出的呢？对我们马拉巴圣格勒爱切特阿文内约提尔内不丘。Maranam Avene Pritchivakanada Asadiam Aidano. German. Wir alle wissen, hat Jesus aus Nazareth ähm, in, in Gottes Auftrag mitten unter euch mächtig Taten, Zeichen und Wunder gewirkt. Gott selbst hat durch diesen Mann gehandelt und ihn so euch gegenüber als seinen Gestanden bestätigt. Diesen Jesus hat Gott auferweckt und damit die Macht des Todes gebrochen. Wie hätte auch der Tod über ihn Gewalt behalten können? Bahasa Malaysia. Yesus orang Nazaret itu sudah diberikan tugas oleh Allah. Hal ini dinyatakan kepada saudara semua dengan mukjizat dan keajaiban yang dilakukan oleh Allah melalui dia. Saudara-saudara mengetahui hal itu, karena semua peristiwa itu berlaku di kalangan saudara. Tetapi Allah sudah membangkitkan dia daripada kematian. Allah membebaskan dia daripada derita kematian, kerana tidak mungkin dia dikuasai terus oleh kematian. Tamer, ninggal arindri kura padi nasr nagiya esuan guda dewan, unggal kulla palade segi gulum, atpudanggalum, adayalanggalum, nadapati, awanggalle awarai unggal ke veli perdinar. Dewan awaradeai marina upadegalin akatte awarite awarai Emu pinar awal baranatilal katap pati kudi rendu. Spanish. Jesus de Nayarit fue un hombre acreditado por Dios ante ustedes con milagros, señales y prodigios, los cuales realizó Dios entre ustedes por medio de él. Como bien lo saben, sin embargo, Dios lo resucitó, librándolo de las Anguistas de la muerte, porque era imposible que la muerte lo mantuviera bajo su dominio. Thank you all so much. That was simply beautiful and powerful, incredible, amazing. I think it still sounded like this too. Oh, all of that. Yeah, that's beautiful, you guys. That was incredible. Thank you, Nidhi, for your leadership, and thank you to all who participated and for sharing the gift of the language spoken in your home and in your childhood and in your hearts. Um, the language that is universal to all of us. This story um, from Peter, from Acts chapter two. Um, I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark Church, and I'm feeling a little bit like beautifully overwhelmed by that. Um, by Pastor Mark's electric slide, completely just, you know, David danced unashamed before the Lord. And that's like Pastor Mark's life verse somehow. It's like unashamed before the Lord. I'm so grateful for that. So thank you to the worship team and for all of you participating and joining on in. And if you sat here today and thought, oh, I have a language I could have 
contributed to, then guess what? This will happen again next year. So Pentecost Shavuot happens every year. So please come on and join us. All right, we are starting a new series today called Peter, A Living Hope. And we're going to be taking a little bit of a dive into the life of Peter um, and then also pushing into First and Second Peter after we kind of uncover a little bit of who Peter is and what he was about. And did he actually answer to that name when his mother called it? Was that how she pronounced all the good things we'll ask? And fortunately for us, as we start to dive in, I think what many of us think of Peter right away when we think of this day of Acts chapter 2 and the events of what we call Pentecost or Shavuot. So let's listen in together to the text and we'll hear this story where Peter kind of takes a bit of a leading role in the events that happen. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each, a little like we just experienced now. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Fellow Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus from Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, And of all of that, all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see and hear. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let this and the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, for all your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And so those who welcomed this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, in the church, growing up, we've called this Pentecost. Anybody grew up in a liturgical church? Many. I grew up Lutheran. So we had, this was the day when the banners and the liturgical cloths for the altar changed color, right? And the color changed to red for the fire. And we'd have flames. Or sometimes we have pictures of the dove descending on down as well, even though dove not mentioned in Acts 2, but a nice symbol of the Holy Spirit that we have present. Um, why do we have the symbol of the dove as a Holy Spirit? Yeah. Baptism of Jesus, yes, and one other place there's a dove. Not one other, but one other big place. It's at the beginning. Noah's Ark, yeah, good. Good job. Well done, everybody. Okay, that was just test one. You, you aced it with flying colors. Um, so a lot of us, when we talk about this, we talk about this as the beginning or the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're like, well, I even actually went one time and heard somebody speak, and they were talking. The, I, I was upset, by the way, so just, for, just I got upset. Um, they said, let's talk about songs David couldn't sing. And they said that David could not sing a song of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit didn't arrive until Acts chapter 2. And I immediately, in my good Trinitarian heart, freaked out because when we speak of the events of Pentecost as the coming of the Holy Spirit only, like it's like Jesus, like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit decided to show up, we run into the danger of thinking that the Holy Spirit came into existence at this time and didn't show up before, and that's not so, right? Because if you are a Christian, then you believe that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and preexistent before all time. Okay, just sliding a little good Trinitarian Christology in there for you in case anyone's confused. The Holy Spirit was not born in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't the first time the Spirit of God moved. And in fact, David danced in the spirit of the Lord, as we already talked about earlier. And yes, okay? So this is not the first time that the Holy Spirit showed up. It is also not the church's birthday. So a lot of people are like, and this is the birthday of the church. And so we'll talk about that a lot. This is the time when all of a sudden a church was created. But the word church does not apply here to this context, and we're going to see why. So it's not the church's birthday. So if I just upset all of you and how you've like framed Pentecost for the rest of your life, I'm very sorry, but I just want to let you know it's not the Holy Spirit's birthday, nor is it the church's birthday, but it is something deeply important. So we talk about this event, it's called Pentecost, and in your Hebrew Bible, it's called Shavuot. This was not the first time this holiday was ever kept. In fact, in the, your Bible, it's called Shavuot. You can say Shavuot. Shavuot. Good. Or it's called the Feast of Weeks, because a, a week is a Shavua, and so more than one week, in plural for feminine nouns, is Shavuot. Shavua, Shavuot. So this is festival or Feast of Weeks. In your Bible and mine, there are seven biblical feasts that are talked about in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, and particularly Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. 
we have these seven biblical feasts. You can read them with me. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, Shavuot or Pentecost, those are the three words that we'll use for that. The Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and Tabernacles. Now, as this seven holiday cycle sort of moves around for the religious festival calendar of the ancient Israelites, and still today, we would see that these three highlighted festivals are ones that you are required to go to Jerusalem for obligated. So the others you can celebrate at home. No problem. You can stay home for trumpets. Even Day of Atonement, which I know is surprising to all of us, you can stay home for that. But you have to show up for tabernacles. You have to show up in Jerusalem, in the place where God puts God's name, for Shavuot Pentecost weeks. That's like, let's just call it Shavuot today for us. And you have to show up in Jerusalem for Passover. You are obligated Okay, so there's seven festivals, but three are pilgrimage festivals. And in Leviticus, it'll say that from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks and count off 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. This is what we call Shavuot, the seven full weeks. And this is where we get the word Pentecost. 50 penta cost for the 49 days plus one or 50 days, okay? It's a pilgrimage festival. It's so important that later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, Paul, the apostle who is far away in Turkey, in Ephesus, Asia Minor, he's going to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he is in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. Why? Because he needs to get there by Pentecost. He's trying his darndest to obey God's commands and show up for this festival. Now, these festivals are also harvest festivals. They're not just holidays that God sort of like grabs out of thin air and goes, I don't know, on a Tuesday, let's do this. Instead, it's kind of brilliant. As the Israelites are going to enter into the land of Canaan, he knows, God knows, that there are a whole bunch of harvests that happen in the land, that they are cyclical, and that there are Canaanite gods that take credit for all these different harvests. And so God is going to say, you know what, let's make sure that when that harvest comes around, you know who really did this for you. So those three pilgrimage festivals are also primarily the three harvest festivals. Passover is the barley festival where you would start to reap your barley and bring it on in. And then when we get to Shavuot, Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, wheat is that festival. And it's also the beginning of the summer fruit. It's not yet the full harvest. It's the beginning of it. And tabernacles is the end of your summer fruit harvest, okay? When you're going to be gathering in more of the pomegranates and the figs and the grapes and things like that. Now, in the ancient Israelite mindset, these three pilgrimage festivals, these three pilgrimage harvest festivals, were also about identity. And God in the Torah connects them to being set free from Egypt, that's Passover, to receiving the covenant, wait, hang for it, I'll, take, I'll show it to you, and tabernacles is about, hey, go and have a very nice fort situation because you for 40 years were protected by me in the desert. I dwelt among you. You dwelt in temporary booths, dwelling places, nice tents, not as nice as mine. Thank you very much. And so we're going to act that out every fall so that you remember as you peek through the roof of your sukkah, of your tabernacle, your temporary dwelling place, and you see the lights of the stars shining through, you remember that I'm your covering. Okay, all of this is true in Jesus' day. Jesus thought this about all of these festivals. This was his calendar. He didn't do Christmas, Easter, okay? That was not yet, that's actually, yeah, no. Okay, so these are the stories. Now, during this time, we're not exactly quite sure exactly when, but it also became customary to read the scroll of Ruth at Shavuot. Why? Because the Scroll of Ruth is very nice. It's a short book. It goes from beginning to end. It's a nice story, and it deals with famine, and it deals with having to exile yourself from the land and return. And all of a sudden, and it goes from barley harvest to wheat harvest in just the sh short chapters of this book. And it talks about reaping, gleaning, threshing, and winnowing. And also, Ruth is from Moab. She's not an Israelite, but she ends up becoming the great-grandmother of King David. And guess what? There's a legend that King David was born and died on the festival of Shavuot. 
So people started reading the scroll of Ruth. It actually, in the order of the Hebrew Bible, comes towards the very end of the Hebrew Bible as it's booked today because those scrolls towards the end were all the ones that we would read at our various festivals. Now, this year, right now, modern, this year, Pentecost for us, Shavuot for us, for the church is today. In the Hebrew calendar, in the Hebrew Jewish calendar, it was Friday. So it started Thursday night, and the tradition still to this day is to stay up all night studying from sundown to sundown, to just stay up and study the whole night. Why? Why has that become the tradition? Let's talk about it. In the book of Jubilees, which is still in the Ethiopian Christian canon, it is in the Ethiopian Jewish canon, um, and it is not in our canon. In the book of Jubilees, which was also found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, written about 100 BCE, they say this. It is this reason that is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets that we should celebrate the Feast of Weeks in this month once a year to renew the covenant every year. You see, the ancient Israelites were really good at math. Just trust me. Everything had a numerical value. Every letter had a numerical value. um, And they would think about numbers as also symbols. And you can do that too. Like when we say the earth was created in seven days, Maybe there's not a lot of us that actually think it was seven 24-hour periods, but we could say, oh, the number seven is a symbol of completeness, of perfection, of wholeness. So God is saying God took care of everything in that time, right? It's a symbol and a picture. But when the ancient Israelites were set free from Egypt, and they had that Passover happen, and, and the angel of death passed over them, and then they were ushered out of Egypt through the Red Sea and everything else, for about... 40 days it took them to get to the base of what mountain? Mount Sinai. And you guys know what happened at Mount Sinai? God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, his covenant. So here we have in the Talmud, it says Pentecost is the anniversary of the delivery of the commandments from Mount Sinai. After numbering seven weeks during the ripening for the time of rain, the Israelites were to hold holy convocation to praise the one. The first day the Israelites were redeemed from slavery and superstition. The 50th day, a law was given to them for their guide through life. And therefore they are commanded to number these days and remember them. They are to count the days between the Passover and the exile, the being set free from Egypt to the days until they arrive at Mount Sinai when they are given the gift of the Torah. Uh, Christian theologian, author, scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson says this, a symbolic world is made up of the social structures in which people live and the symbols attached to and supporting those structures. The better one's grasp of this symbolic world, the more intelligent will one's reading be of the New Testament. And the writers of the New Testament are doing exactly what others were doing in the first century world, seeking to interpret their religious experiences with the available symbols. So here's my question. If that's true, and if the writers of the New Testament are going, oh, there's all these symbols that are powerful and mean something in our midst, tell me about what's happening at Pentecost. As we read that whole section and listened to Peter's long speech in Acts chapter 2, what are they experiencing and what symbols might they start to attach their experience in that moment to things that meant something to them through the pull of the grand narrative of ancient Israel? So one might be this, Tower of Babel. Anybody know the story of the Tower of Babel? What happens? It's in Genesis. It's weird. Yes? So um, people were becoming proud and were building uh, a structure to the, to the heavens to get close to God, but God wanted them to, to, God wanted them to rely on him, so they, he scrambled their speech and everybody spoke in a different way. Great, perfect. Thank you so much. What was your name? Julie, blessed are you. Julie, thank you, excellent. Very, I don't know if you all heard Julie, I'm going to repeat it. That was fantastic. Okay, so people are trying to become like God. They try to build a big tower up to the heavens so they can be like God, and they're working on it, working on it, and God and has this conversation with his holy entourage, and he looks down, and he says, hey, look what's happening there, and if they're going to do this, what else could they do? I know I'm going to confuse their language. Thus, the word Babel. Actually, exactly that. It's because they're going to babble after this. So maybe that story has a resonance in Acts chapter 2, doesn't it? Where all of a sudden, the languages 
You read in Acts chapter two just now, the languages that people didn't know or didn't know that they could know or didn't know that that person could speak, they can start to hear and understand. That God is somehow reversing that which happened at Babel and sort of setting things back in order in Acts chapter two. Has anyone ever thought of that resonance? Babel in Acts chapter two. I think it's kind of a fun thing to think about. Go, research it, study, write a paper, I'd love to read it. That's one. What other resonance and symbols could we find? Let's go to Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? Does anybody remember? Go back with me all the way to Moses. Moses standing there, Charlton Heston-like, you know? Um, one through five on one tablet, six through ten on there, because God can't write small. Um, he's only got like 20-point font, so he's got to have two. Okay, go to Garden to Garden. It's like, you know, it's, it's copies, one copy and another copy. One for the Israelites, one for God, and God's going to put both in the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know about that, come hang out at Garden to Garden. Okay, so... That. What happens at the giving of the commandments? What happens? What's physically happening? What's the experience of the Israelites? What's happening on the mountain? Fire. What else? Thunder. What else? Clouds. Yeah, I mean, like, and what are the Israelites doing? Freak out, right? Like they're like, freak, freak out. They get back, get back. They're like, they're trembling. Then God's like, get them back. They can't, they can't handle all this. And so all of that is happening in that moment. Now, if that's what happens at the giving of the covenant and that every single Shavuot, Pentecost, where you are required to be in Jerusalem, you're going to remember the giving of this covenant. And you're going to recite the covenant again and hear it again and remind everybody, this is what we're doing, everybody. These are our identity festivals here. Who are we? What are we following? What are we supposed to do? If you go now to Acts chapter 2, what starts to happen in the house that they're in? Wind rushes through. Fire shows up. And everyone starts to speak in tongues. And tongues of fire come and then people start to speak in different languages. And the word in Hebrew for thunder is kolot, and that can be also the word for voice and voicing out to languages. Luke knew those symbols. He knew what he could attach to the explanation of Acts chapter 2. He could connect that immediately back to Exodus. He uses those external symbols to describe the witness's internal transformation. He's like, what happened? God showed up again, just like God did the thousand plus years before, depending on 2,000 years before, date Exodus, every, all the ways you want, right? And the mighty wind and the tongues of fire signaled the presence of God. By the way, not just because of Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus 24, but also 1 Kings 18 and 19. And we could go to all the other places where fire and wind show up to indicate the presence of God. Those symbols and those pictures are popping into the eyes and the hearts and the minds of everyone who's there. So let's figure out where are they? So let's read the verse. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Where are they? Well, my whole life I was taught that they were in the upper room. Anybody else? Yeah, upper room, right? That's where they are because that's where they are in like the verses just before. So, you know, we know that people don't move. They have to stay in exactly the same place because we just, right? Okay, so we actually, listen, I've gone there. I've taken the tour. I can show you exactly where they think the upper room might be. It's very cool, by the way. It's like a 300 to 400 after Jesus building that then later on gets turned into a mosque. And so, you know, um, Maybe did it look something like that? And they're all there. So if it's the upper room that people are suggesting is the upper room, let's take a look at this for a minute. I'm just going to orient you to our map, our little aerial view, and our map over here to the right. We have the Temple Mount. We have the access, the pilgrimage entrance up to the Temple Mount and the Southern Stairs. And then all the way over towards the Western Hill, we have the Upper Room, which also has become much later on, that may be a tradition about David's tomb. We kind of think probably David is buried closer towards where the Southern Steps are. And that's what's called Mount Zion today. By the way, in Jesus' day, it was not called Mount Zion. The Crusaders 
terrible at many things, also geography. And so when they got there, they were like, that can't be Mount Zion, the, where the Temple Mount is. We're going to move Mount Zion. So Mount Zion, listen, all the, all the Psalms are true. Mount Zion shall not be moved. But the name did move to the Western Hill. Okay, so somewhere there is where maybe we would put like an Essene quarter or a place where maybe the disciples were hanging out that night before Jesus was killed, right? Their last supper, upper room. And apparently they just stayed there for a very long time. Is that true? No, it's not. We can show you all the verses in your Bible. Some went up to Galilee, some were there, all the things. But it says they're in a house. So that's a weird, like, right? They're in a house. This is the house. Luke chapter 24, verse 50 Verses 50 through 53. When he had led them out, this is after Jesus, just before his ascension. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. And they worshiped him with joy, worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. The word house is used very often to refer to the house of God. The Bible frequently uses the designation the house for the temple. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 5, chapter 42, verse 15, 43, 10, 2 Chronicles 3, 4, 3, verse 4, all those things. King James Version translates the Hebrew as house or the house of the Lord rather than temple. Temple is a Greek word. It is not the word that was primarily used. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. That is often used to refer to God's house, capital H, house in Jerusalem. So are they down over here on that southwestern hill in that upper room so far away from the temple? On the day that they're required to be at the temple because it's Shavuot, it's one of the three times you're supposed to be there. You're going to go all the way, stay in Jerusalem where you're not from, all the way and stay there for that. And Jesus says, stay here until I tell you to go. So they're going to stay there. And Luke tells you they're daily at the temple courts praying. What's the time of the morning sacrifice when you would be required to go? Anyone want to guess? 9 a.m. They say, hey, you guys are drunk. Peter's like, it's only 9 a.m. Where are they? They're at the house. They are here, if you're looking from Mount of Olives. They're entering on up in there. They're, this would be the pilgrimage, pilgrimage entrance, the southern steps entering on up into the house. And doesn't that explain then why a whole bunch of other people are there too? Because I used to hear actually people go, oh, you know, because I'm like, but how did the 3,000 were added to their number? Like that's a tiny room. How'd they get all those people there? Well, they just heard the wind, and it was really cool. And they were like, what is that? And then they got close, and then God like magically moved the walls, and then the people got it. No, no, this, this is the house. This is God's house. Jesus himself says, remember when he's a little kid, and he's gone to Jerusalem for his first Passover. He's 13 probably, and, and he goes there, and, and they, they start walking home, and they're like, where is he? And then you know, Mary and Joseph freak out, and they run back to Jerusalem. And what is he? They're like, why did you do this to us? And he's just hanging out in Jerusalem at the temple. And what does he say? Did you not know I'd be in my father's house? Yeah. So how do the people respond when this event happens at the house of God? When all of a sudden fire comes out and rushing wind and languages start to fill the place and everyone's like, I'm hearing my own language being spoken. By the way, why would there be a whole bunch of people there who are Israelites who are aware and speaking other languages? Because it's Shavuot, and it's the diaspora, right? They're all coming from all the other countries that they need to come from to be there because it's the pilgrimage festival. They have to be there that day. And they all start to hear this. And so what is their response? They are immediately like, as the, as the fire comes out and fills a place, they're like, this is amazing. How is it that we hear all of this? And then Peter gives the best speech ever, right? And I used to think as a kid, Wow, that's so amazing that when the Holy Spirit fell down, the Holy Spirit also filled up Peter with all of the words he would need for just that moment. Peter just sat there and then like God delivered his fantastic sermon through Peter. No, of course, he has the whole thing memorized. And he's been thinking a lot about how this all makes sense. And he's been reordering his whole world to try to sort through death, burial, resurrection, the Messiah is alive. What does this all mean? 
And as he's sitting there, and as he's preaching this fantastic message, he says to them, they're like, what do we do? He's like, repent and be immersed. Do immersion. Do, we say, baptism, which sounds very Christian, so let's just change it for a minute. Do mikvah. At the southern steps, as you would enter on up, because all the pilgrims would go, there were ritual cleansing pools. The archaeologists have found dozens and dozens and dozens of ritual cleansing pools all at this entrance of the southern steps. You know what? There would have been enough water to see about 3,000 people immersed. And when Peter says, do this, ritually immerse yourself, you guys look at all the immersion pools just so the pilgrims can ritually immerse themselves and be cleansed before they go up into the temple of the house of God and worship, as you would go down on one side because you were, by the way, you didn't take a bath. It's not like scrub brush, loofah, bubble, Mr. Bubble, none of that. This is not about physically getting clean. This is a spiritual preparation and a symbol of your heart. And you would do it every time you go to the temple. You would do it for ritual impurity. You would do it if you wanted to convert, um, you would, and you were not Jewish, you want to become Jewish, it would be one of the things you would do. And so all these people are preparing their hearts, and they're going up there, and Peter says, repent and do immersion. And he baptizes, he has people immerse in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which it is, by the way, unheard of to ever immerse yourself under the name of somebody who's dead. You immerse yourself under, like when John the Baptist, John the Immerser, is down at the Jordan River, and he's saying, repent, come, turn, right? That would be in John's baptism. You do it when he's alive, but, but once he's dead, you don't keep doing that. It's weird. So the fact that they immerse themselves in the name of Jesus, of Nazareth, means that they believe that he is alive. With many other words... Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message did mekvah. They immersed themselves and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So was Luke sitting there with like a little counter? Click, 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 click. 2,099, 2,900, right? No? Why does he say 3,000? Nice round number. Where else does the number 3,000 show up? It's a symbol. It's a picture. Where else does it come? Here's your hint. Golden calf, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 32, 28. Remember when they're up there, Moses getting all those good commandments. The Israelites get a little bit worried because he's been gone a long time. So they're like, you know what? Let's make some golden calves. That sounds like a great, brilliant idea. And we will worship those. They go on down there. Moses gets super mad. He breaks the covenant, smashes into pieces. All these terrible things happen. And the Levi, he sends Levites out throughout the camp to punish those who were idol worshiping. And the Levites did it. Moses commanded in that day about 3,000 of the people died. I think Luke wants you to believe and to understand and to know that it's happening again. That the presence of God is still present that it's happening again, that God's presence that we've been carrying through the desert with us for 40 years, that, that tabernacled in Shiloh until it was taken into battle and then was brought back to Jerusalem and then God needs a nicer house because we now have nicer houses so we're going to build God's house in Jerusalem, that the presence of God that has been there for the people, the presence of God that when that temple was destroyed, left and went with the Israelites into exile in the book of Ezekiel, and then came and brought them back at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And when we see that presence of God in the house of God in Jerusalem come out in Acts chapter 2 and land on everybody and that holy wind blow through, God is doing it again. And this time, it seems like God is changing God's address again. Because God is now filling the people and not only a building. This is something God's been doing all along. Way back in Exodus, it says, please build this tabernacle so that I can dwell amongst you, in you, the people of God. But maybe something about the fact that it's stuck in one place or maybe something about the mission of God through the person of Jesus is going to go out into the world and we need that moving tabernacle again. And so Peter and Paul will grab this image and say things like, all y'all are 
a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or all y'all are being built together as a living temple for the Lord. So what we think about these events shapes our identity and call. If we think about these events as a time of harvest and a time of identity and understanding that we are connected as the people of God back to an event at Mount Sinai, being recreated again, being called and chosen again to be a light amongst the nations, then we live differently. If we think of this as the time when you and I individually got some sort of superpower, then that also changes how we live. In Acts chapter 2, it's not about what we get. Maybe it's about what we now can give. Is it about responsibility and obedience, or is it about special powers and exclusion? Do you have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Did the Holy Spirit fall on you? Do you speak in tongues? And by tongues, what do we mean? A special language nobody understands. It doesn't maybe. I'm not saying that that. Maybe that's beautiful, wonderful. But if it becomes like a badge that you put on your Girl Scout vest or Boy Scout vest or bumper sticker on your car of I'm better than you, then we've missed what Acts chapter 2 is all about. Because Acts chapter 2 is about the sign of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is this about us or is it about God and the continued story of Israel through the person of Jesus? Remember that the signs of the Spirit are that everyone devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they all, and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone's filled with awe at the many wonders signs performed, and all believers together, and they had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions, and they gave to everyone who had need. The sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit was care of the poor. The sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit was care for one another, fellowship with one another. Those are the signs and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that is what is so attractive that people can't stay away and they just keep joining on in. Because a community that is alive, that carries the presence of God amongst the world, that is something I want to be part of, man. And also the care of the poor. Is that just like a nice thing? No. This is exactly what you're supposed to do for the festival of Shavuot. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. That's what the story of Ruth is about. She's poor. She goes to glean the corners of the field and she's brought in as a foreigner into the house and the story of God. One more little cherry on top. You ready? It's just very, very short. First century in... Josephus, this historian, he recounts that in Shavuot of 4 BCE, so Jesus is alive, but Herod has just died. Jesus is little. According to Matthew, he'd still be in Egypt, maybe coming back just after Herod's death. Um, the Jews revolted against the Roman treasurer Sabinus, who was sent by Caesar. So Herod the Great's died, and they're like, how much money did that guy get? Let's go get some. So Rome sends Sabinus there, and Josephus writes that it's Pentecost. It's Shavuot. And tens of thousands of people are coming together, not only to celebrate the festival, but out of their indignation at the madness of Sabinus and the injuries he offered him. Because where did Herod get his money? From the people. Like, you can't just come and take the money out of God's house. We've given that. So, the Judeans, along with Galileans, Idumeans, and people across the Jordan, Josephus says, joined forces against Sabinus, and they took hold of the palace in the western hill. The one Herod built for his brother, Phasel. And the temple, they take hold of that too. And the Hippodrome. In response, Romans get mad. They set fire to the buildings and a great many of the rebels are burned to death. So this is not the only Shavuot when fire has come. But this one, people died in. And the Judeans were so upset at all that Rome was doing that some threw themselves under the sword or threw themselves into the fire just out of despair. What was meant to be that life-affirming feast, remembering the covenant, became a festival of oppression. But in Acts chapter 2, this first Shavuot and Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection ascension, God replenishes Israel. And instead of destructive fires of the empire, Jerusalem is infused with the fire of the Holy Spirit, even as Rome looks on. There's something super cool about this fire that has just filled this community. Rome can't put it out. Rome didn't start the fire. They can't put the fire out. And the empire can't do anything about it. And this fire brings life not death. And that memory has to be in the minds of all the people who are there too. They would have known that story quite well. All of Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of what Joel said. The prophet Joel 
Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And my question for you today is not, did it happen again, but will it happen again? Are we so excited about the move and the power of God in our midst? Are we so confident of the life, the living, breathing Christ amongst us? Are we so excited about what we might all do collectively as the church, capital C of God, that we would come together and say, Holy Spirit, dwell here, make your home here, breathe through us here with rushing wind and with fire, and may your presence be evident by our love and our care for one another and for the poor. Jesus is here. The Spirit of God is here. The Father is still at work. It's happening again. It will happen again and again and again because God is alive, and the only question is whether or not we want to be part of it. And you guys, I want to be part of it. And I want to do it with you all. This is what the story of Acts chapter 2 is about. And it's what Peter will give his life for. This movement of God. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. The empire can look on and they can try to squash it all they want. But the prophecies of Joel are coming to pass. Jesus is alive. The spirit blows through us. And as we all come together and we lean and we try to tune our hearts to the presence of God in our midst, every single week we come together and we feast at that banqueting table again. And we remember the beautiful meal of 2,000 years ago. We remember the meals of the disciples and all of the early followers came together and broke bread and shared and fellowshiped with one another. And y'all, this is just the taste, isn't it? The foretaste of the feast to come. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broken, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All who are thirsty, come. All who are hungry, come. The table has been prepared for you and for me, and all are welcomed at this table.